Welcome to the Persuasion World of Work podcast. This is a podcast for people who are curious about working life and what it tells us about ourselves. Your hosts are Susie Kenefick and Anya McGuire. We are executive coaches with an insatiable curiosity about the life that is lived at work. In this podcast, we reflect on what's happening in the world of work and what it means for everyone who works. Our topic today is millennials in the workforce. Did you know, Susie, that there are four generations in the workforce now? First time we've had that number of generations. Can you identify them by their popular names? I think I can. So I'm going to start with the eldest, baby boomers. Yeah. Um, followed by Generation X, then millennials, who we're talking about today, and Generation Z or Z. I never know whether it's Z or Z, but they're the, the, the snowflake generation. The snowflake generation, that's a good name, yeah. And uh, Gen Y being the technical name for millennials who we're going to discuss today. Mm -hmm. So thank you for identifying those different generations. And today we're going to begin what we decided would be an occasional series where we investigate the different generational experiences of people in today's world of work. Because it is interesting for the first time, we have so many generations in the workplace. And of course, that means that the workplace is more diverse and is richer for that diversity, but also more complex. So we thought it would be a good idea to investigate the experience of each generation, what they bring with them to the organisations in which they work, the challenges they face, and what other generations might learn from them. Okay, well, that sounds great. So besides me... (laughs) Before we get into the hard stuff, who are some of your favourite well-known millennials? Okay, well, you're obviously my top favourite millennial of all time. But um, apart from you, yes, there are some other millennials that seem to come into my world a lot. Cristiano Ronaldo is one I seem to spend a lot of time speaking about. Uh, Some of the other people that I would like, I like Dolly Alderton. And Serena Williams, I think, is an amazing millennial. Taylor Swift is someone I often use in leadership training as an example of someone who's really independent and savvy and has gone her own way and not done what other people do. And Lady Gaga is probably another one. I thought she did an amazing job belting out the American national anthem there a few weeks ago at President Biden's inauguration. Oh, yeah. What about Irish ones? Irish ones. Yes, there's some very good Irish ones. Sinead Burke an amazing lady who has come to the fore in the last few years. Mm, Who else? Loads of sports people like our rugby team, Johnny Sexton, and and I suppose most of the rugby team, probably. The male and the female rugby Mm -hmm. teams are millennials. Uh, Anybody else you can think of, Susie? I think just in the context of the discussion we're going to have about millennials in the workplace, I think Mark Zuckerberg is a really good example because I think he really represents that whole, you know, idea of disruption. And, you know, the removal of the hierarchy in the workforce. So, yeah, definitely the whole tech revolution is probably, you know, very much so been something that's been fronted by by millennials more so than any other generation. Mm. Yeah. So that's one of their contributions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on the Irish front, and maybe Bresi. Bresi, good yeah. example. Yeah. 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 A modern man. OK. A disruptor in his own way. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Mm. OK, well, thanks for that. And later on, we will be speaking to our guest, Elaine Egan, who has kindly agreed to represent the voice of millennials in the workforce on the podcast today. Having worked in publishing in the UK and Ireland and in her current role as the publicity director for a large publishing house, Elaine is very well placed to discuss the fast paced working world from the millennial perspective. That sounds really interesting. Looking forward to hearing what Elaine has to say. I'm feeling very millennial myself today because I went to the farmer's market and currently I have homemade bread in the oven. So I'm wow. fe- 
I feel quite Gwyneth. She's a millennial, isn't she? No, is she? I think she is, yeah. I think oh, she is. We might need to check her age. She certainly looks like one, but that might be down to all those, um, you know, very nourishing things that she ingests, maybe more so possibly, than her actual age. Possibly, yeah, possibly. Or all those conscious things she does. Um, the elixirs, yeah. Yeah, anyway, let's get on to the science of this. Um, what's in the Susie talk slot today? please. Okay. Well, I think the first thing we need to do is be quite technical in as much as we can about who we're talking about when we are defining the millennial era and when it begins and ends. And I should caveat that this isn't overly scientific. There are a couple of different ranges that have been suggested for this particular generation. And roughly it includes anybody born from maybe 1980, 81, upwards to 94, 95, 96. So if we give it the most generous age range that we can. We're talking about people born between 1980 and 1996 or roughly age 25 to 40. Mm. That makes sense. So I think when we talk about young professionals, just taking that age range in mind, it's important to note that what we're really talking about is millennials. So they are Mm. a generation on the cusp of having quite a significant influence on the workforce. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And it's something that a lot of employers are really alive to, Mm -hmm. that we're now at a point where for many organisations, millennials will be the top generation, the most widely represented in the workforce. And I can see, you know, in my own work that that is having a huge impact on how things are seen, how things are communicated and on decision making by employees. So tell us a bit more about millennials. Well, let's talk a bit about what characterises millennials. Now, Anya, you know, generally the point of Susie Talk is that I like to discuss principles from an evidence-based perspective. So Mm. I do have to caveat here that some of what I'm about to say is based purely on cultural stereotypes. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with a few stereotypes to warm up a conversation. Yeah, but the first point, which I think is true and statistically so, Millennials are more educated and more employed compared to our Generation X and Boomer counterparts. And it's also said that our standard of living is higher. Now, I'm not sure if that's exactly true, but Anya, I know you have a few thoughts about this. Yeah, I'm not sure that the perception of millennials is that their standard of living is higher than that of, let's say, their parents. I'm conscious that a lot of people that I would have worked with would say that things that their parents aspire to maybe owning their own home, having a pension, feel quite far out of their reach currently. Where I think you are right is their standard of day-to-day living is much higher and much richer. And that's what they focus on. You know, they want a good day-to-day living. They don't really want to be saving for the pension or the house. Would you agree with that? I think so, yeah. I think um, maybe on a day-to-day basis, the short-term picture of financial health perhaps or living standard is better. You know, we do go out to eat more maybe and go on more holidays, but certainly the long-term picture in terms of financial health is is possibly a little bit bleaker than it would be for older generations. Well, let's talk about avocado toast. Okay, well, that actually leads me very nicely into the next point, which is millennials are said to love avocado toast, and we do. Um, so the Australian real estate mogul Tim Gurner got himself into a little bit of hot water in 2017, where he stated that he thought young people would be able to buy houses and save up for their deposits if they just stopped going out for brunch. Oh, oh no, that's probably a bridge too far, is it? That's austerity too far. I think it was a bit contentious. 
Um, <laughs> so, I mean, he was suggesting something which I think a lot of people probably do accuse millennials of, which is that we have very high expectations. And I think that that's probably the fact that we were raised during the Celtic Tiger at a time where standards did become very high and there was a lot more affluence in society and people's living standards were higher. So I suppose, you know, we've then arrived to the workforce and, you know, we do have these high expectations. So I don't know, that probably brings me quite nicely into the next point as well, which is to just generally talk about the kinds of personality traits that are associated with millennials. So we've been described as lazy, entitled and self-obsessed narcissists. <laughs> not, not particularly... Uh, not particularly nice, uh, where the everyone gets a ribbon generation. But on the other hand, slightly more positively, we're also thought to be more liberal, more open-minded, self-expressive, upbeat and passionate. Mm. Yeah, a very rich characterization there. Some of the things I'm going to say to you that I'm not sure millennials are really open-minded. I think they're very liberal in their views in terms of what's acceptable to them in terms of mores. But for me, open-mindedness is understanding where other people are coming from and not ruling anything in or out, not seeing things as right and wrong. I actually think that millennials are people who do have very high standards and often they come to regard some behaviours or some thoughts as being right and others as being wrong. Maybe it's a question of maturity. I think other generations would have a more fluid view on that. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, I should probably defend my own generation a little bit more probably in that respect. Should. But I do think I know where you're coming from. And actually this particular phenomenon, um, I, I think that was really, really visible when that controversy uh, arose a couple of months ago over what J.K. Rowling said about who are these people who who menstruate? And she said, oh, it's women. And that caused a lot of consternation. And, and she got a lot of criticism from, from people who maybe um, don't identify as one particular gender or are or transgender. And, you know, there are all kinds of different issues, I suppose, that might have caused somebody to have a problem with what she said. But I do think for me, you know, I was quite conflicted about that whole situation because whilst I understand where all the criticism came from. I also think you have to contextualise it and remember that J.K. Rowling is a woman in her 50s who is from an older generation and she is reaching her perspective and she's coming at it from her life experience. And, you know, we, we have to have possibly a little bit more respect, I think, for where people are coming from um, because it won't always be the same journey that, that we've been on. So I think that's a, that's a good example maybe of that, that phenomenon, as I say. It's a very good example. And I think to be generous about it, the millennial rush to challenge people who have views or express views that are in quotes wrong for millennials comes from a good place. It comes from a place of wanting everybody to be accepted and wanting broad definitions and wanting inclusivity. But I think often the manner of doing so actually has the opposite effect. Yeah. As my one of my favourites, Brene Brown always says, mm. people are hard to hate up close. Yeah. Very good yeah, point. Yeah, Very good yeah. point. Okay. 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 So why do millennials matter in the workplace? Well, according to some research that was conducted on US employees by Brandon Ragoni and Amy Adkins, millennials are said to be consumers of the workplace. So what that means is that we will shop around for the right job, both at the outset of our careers and as our careers progress. And there's also some Gallup research out there which shows that millennials are much more likely to job hop. And I think this is something on you that differentiates us quite strongly from older generations. So we we don't subscribe to the job for life ideal. Mm. We, you know, we shop around for jobs and what we're looking for are careers that align with our life goals and values and on our identities, maybe. So I don't know from your coaching experience when it comes to coaching millennials, are these things that you You've seen 
Yes, I absolutely endorse what you're saying there. I think that they are a generation that their values and how they are aligned with the content of their work, the organisation they work for, the people they work with is really important. And it is starting to drive their decision making, in my view. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how the pandemic impacts on millennial decision making in the workplace about their careers, because obviously we're all going through a major event. And my feeling is that it's a time for making people think in a deeper way and maybe will lead to sort of action when the pandemic is over. So yeah, as a coach, I can see that when I'm working with millennials, their values and what their choices about their work or the organization they work for or the people they work with, what it says about them is very important. Whereas for previous generations, that hasn't really featured in decision-making. Not Mm -hmm. saying that values don't, because values feature very heavily in decision-making, particularly in the senior years of someone's career, but not in the early years. Typically, the early years are regarded as striving years. And millennials While they are striving, of course, many millennials are now in in leadership roles in organizations. So they're leaving those striving years and starting to make quite different decisions, I think, than other generations have made. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the the whole idea of self-actualization or individuation, you know, reaching your potential and, and finding true meaning and purpose at work, I think that's possibly something which millennials are a lot more plugged into at an early age, possibly than older generations might be. And, you know, I think as we've discussed this before, it's, it's not that older generations, you know, don't have an identity or they, they don't regard that as important. It's just perhaps something that they see as a journey that they go on. Whereas I think that millennials are very, very keen and almost have this urgency about them to really find their life's purpose at a very early stage in their careers, which of course is not not always practicable or, um, you know, I think our identity is fluid and it changes as we as we get older. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think any of us can short circuit the life process, uh, mm-hmm. but I do agree with you. I think the identity issue is something that has emerged along with millennials. It's something that's happening anyway, and it's collided with them moving into leadership roles in the world now. And and they are becoming the lead generation. And I think that they are part of something that's going on in the world, which is, in my view, a big hunger for identity and a, a big sort of clamour to have identity acknowledged in lots of different ways. And we're living in a very divisive world. So identity is a big issue. So not surprisingly, people in their late 30s early 40s are paying a lot of attention to that and talking and thinking a lot about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that feeds in quite nicely to you know some of the things that are, are considered important to millennials in the workforce considering there are so many of them there now and as you say they are you know very much moving into leadership positions but you know engagement is something that's been cited in a lot of research as being really really critical to millennials and um, they actually describe themselves as the least engaged generation at work so you can just see maybe how much more important it is for them possibly mm. um, and again possibly something that they articulate better than other generations not necessarily that the case that engagement isn't important you know across the board but you know opportunities to learn and grow and the quality of the management that they receive and, and the, again these are things that are important you know for all generations but but particularly so for millennials and um, But what I think is curious is that millennials have been less likely to rank compensation or pay as an important factor in work and then then other generations that for them really the key is learning and growth and, and having strong leaders. So, I mean, again, I don't know, is that something that you see in your coaching? 
Yes, I, I think it is. But I think it's something that, you know, comes from what you spoke about earlier, which is most of these people have been employed throughout their lives. They they went to college. They, you know, they had a good education. They had a good mm-hmm. professional training. So pay is something that's assumed. So I'm not sure that earning money is important for everybody, but it's not center stage for millennials at the moment. But that's because they've not had to focus on it. When you haven't had it, <laughs> it becomes a lot more important. I think that's right, Shiana. As I say, I think that is symptomatic of how we've been raised. And I think the era in which we grew up where, you know, those things weren't as much of a concern as they might have been for previous generations. Yes, but not to not to be critical of millennials, because I think that opportunity to make decisions without having to worry, will I still have a roof over my head is amazing. And it's a gift that you know, their Absolutely. previous generations have given to millennials. It's something that's good for the world. Mm-hmm. So I think we should embrace millennial decision-making mm-hmm. and values-based decision-making. And I have to say as a coach, it is an absolute privilege to work with people who are going through a reorganization or a prioritization of their values and then are able to action that. That's mm-hmm. an amazing uh, thing to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, we are very privileged for sure. Okay, well, the last thing I wanted to mention was maybe some of the pitfalls or the issues that millennials could Mm. find themselves falling into when it comes to the workplace. And I know you have some views on this as well, but I mean, one of the things that struck me in in an article I read was that millennials tend to want more diversity and they're more focused on social issues. And as we discussed previously, they're maybe more likely to be a bit more woke (laughs) than older generations. Mm. Um, But this this can cause problems for them as well, because, you know, as you said earlier, it may be that they're not as open-minded or as tolerant of other views as some of their older colleagues potentially. um, And that might be an issue. And I think another issue that has been flagged for millennials is that they're very much, you know, people who value feedback gratification Mm. and they're constantly looking for feedback and it's the everyone gets a ribbon. We're always looking to be told that we're great at the end of the day. So, you know, I suppose how this need for getting personal uh, affirmation and feedback and, you know, the need to have value and meaning in a personal context at work, I suppose I do see some potential conflicts whereby those needs on the part of of individual millennials may not necessarily align with the organization and with its with its values and its purpose so i was just wondering if, if you had any views on that yeah i think the way you put it is very good and i hope that a lot of managers who are managing millennials are listening to you because i think you describe it very well what i think the implication of what you're saying is really for managers or employers to be thinking about how you motivate people. And I think it's no accident, as you pointed out earlier, that engagement scores and measuring engagement has become a key part of organisational infrastructure in the years when millennials have been in the workforce. So that need for feedback has to be acknowledged and has to be recognised. But also, if you're an employer or a leader of a large organisation, tending to the different needs of the different members of the workplace and making sure that the millennials don't put other people off their stride or can tolerate the the less attractive behaviours that they identify in other generations is very important. So I think there's a big prize in generational diversity. There's a huge prize if you're an organisation, if you can manage to engage people across four generations in collaborating, in innovating, in serving your customers. But it does take work. 
And it takes a lot of work to attend, to listen, to understand the needs of all the different generations and then to accommodate them in the way you manage your workforce, the way you manage their careers, the way you make decisions, every aspect of your workforce. And as we said, millennials are the modal group at the moment. So their concerns must be the concerns of the employer. Yeah, no, I think those are all really, really good tips for employers and people involved in leadership to consider when it comes to how they treat millennials at work. Um, but Anya, I know you have some really good tips as well for millennials themselves when it comes to their working lives. And I was wondering if you could take us through some of those. Yeah, so I think some of these tips are really about acceptance and understanding, you know, that things take longer than it seems. So my first tip is to practice acceptance and also to embrace the gray areas. You don't have to be fixed. Everything doesn't have to be defined and badged and labeled. Sometimes there are gray areas and sometimes it's walking through those gray areas that brings you to a richer understanding of your own life or your own activities. So I think also take time to work out who you are. It does take a lifetime. It takes a working lifetime. And every generation goes through different phases of their identity. So don't deny yourself that journey, all you millennials out there. You know, take it one step at a time. Be curious about yourself and other people. Interrogate where your views are coming from, where your values come from. But also do that of other people, not only in your own generation, but in the other generations. And I think that's a tip for all of us. I think one of the things that is really valuable about the world of work is it's a place where we can meet other generations and learn about and from other generations. And when you leave the world of work, that amazing opportunity isn't there anymore. So we all need to make the most of it while we're in the workplace. Some other practical tips, something we've talked about quite a few times is embracing solitude, countering against the always on culture, turning off the phone, staying away from social media, finding out what's important to you. And I think that this is something that a lot of people are doing now in a different way because so many millennials have had a dramatic life change during the pandemic. Some of them have left the city. Some of them are living in quite a different way with a lot less noise and a lot less busyness. And it could be really interesting to see what happens. I think also work things out for yourself. I'm a big fan of independent thinking. And I think it's important in your 30s and 40s to work out how to think things through for yourself, to find out what are ways of learning about things that are important to you and making up your own mind. So don't be guided by what you read in social media. Make your own mind up, but do it on the basis of evidence. Yeah. And, and of course, it strikes me on you that maybe some coaching might really help some millennials in that regard as well. Yeah. And actually, I think one other thing I would praise the millennial generation for, which I think is different from my generation, is they get help, whether it's their nails, their career, uh, other big issues in life. I think they are very good at getting in help and using help. And that's a talent. Not everybody can use professional advice. Not everybody knows how to access help that will help them. Mm. I think millennials are really good at that. And I notice with millennials, they are the people who have their team around them. You know, the person who does their nails, their hair, their yoga, mm. helps them with their career, you know, other important aspects of life, health, well-being. Mm. And I think that's a very good thing as long as they can afford it. Absolutely. 
And it's interesting when you were just going through those tips. And one thing that occurred to me is I think part of the problem that perhaps millennials have is that they have a lot of choices open to them, you know, mm. and that's a wonderful thing in some respects. But it reminds me of that, that really good book by um, the psychologist Barry Schwartz. It's called The Paradox of Choice. And, you know, essentially the point he makes is that choice is wonderful up to a certain threshold, beyond which having more choice actually is more of a hindrance than a help. And I think it really is something that characterizes the millennial generation and the younger generation as well, Generation Z, is that we have all these choices open to us and it can sometimes feel quite overwhelming. You, you kind of, you know, how do we know we're doing it right? You know, that sort of mm-hmm. idea. And I think that can be a very difficult thing sometimes for younger generations to come to terms with. So, you know, as you say, some of those tips are really, really useful. Just work things out for yourself and take the time, you know? Yeah, yeah. And back yourself something every generation needs to do but you will get there in the end you will get things right and just believe that you will but use your intuition don't use social media to tell you what to do yeah and something else I was thinking about as well is the um the prerogative of every generation that is in its prime to think that it knows everything and you know it doesn't have that much to learn perhaps from older generations but it's really important for millennials to learn from Generation X and from baby boomers, particularly in the workplace. And there's a really good TED talk on this actually by a guy called Chip Conley, who had a very long career in the hotel industry before he joined Airbnb, where he described himself as frequently being the oldest person in the room. And he didn't understand a lot of the more technological aspects of the business and what they were doing on their online platforms and all of that. But, you know, eventually he found a way to leverage all of his, you know, really, really uh, rich experience from working in retail hotels. And, you know, he managed to find a way to actually be useful to the millennials because obviously a lot of those tech companies have quite a, a flat work structure with, you know, very young people working there and he felt a little bit out of place. So, you know, it's it's making sure that we do leverage off each other's skills and, and strengths and remember that boomers and Generation X, they have something to teach us as well and vice versa. We have something to teach them. So I think for, for employers as well, that's something to bear in mind. It's really important to have age diversity in a workplace. It should never be the objective of any organisation to have, you know, all millennials or all mm. generations Generation Z or, you know, whatever it is, a diversity in age is as important as diversity in, in other areas as well. Okay, great. Thanks very much. And now for our Persuasion World of Work Career Investigation Special Millennial Edition, I would like to introduce Elaine Egan. Elaine began her career in publishing in London initially before moving to Dublin, where she is currently the publicity director for Hachette Ireland. Elaine says she loves the fast-paced vibe of the publishing world. Her brief covers everything from supporting authors and building media relationships to event and brand management, as well as social media coordination. Elaine is a green room regular, accompanying authors to chat show appearances. So there is a very glamorous side to her job, which I'm sure she will tell us all about. But for now, welcome to the podcast, Elaine. Thank you for having me. I'm just going to jump in because we've been talking about millennials, as Susie has mentioned, and I'd like to just kick off by asking for your perspective on what you think the reputation of millennials in the world of work is today. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, I think it's somewhat mixed. There's some that would view millennials as somewhat entitled or a bit lazy or, you know, maybe not as dedicated, I think, as well. And I think some of that might stem from the fact that growing up in the time that we grew up, we kind of were very sheltered um, in the sense that it was everything was quite stable. So we're kind of more free thinkers and not as committed to focus on one job and one job as a life commitment. You know, trying to find value in a job and passion is something that's a bit more important 
some millennials can be seen as flighty in that sense because mm. they're not willing to kind of fully commit themselves to one job for life. But I think a huge part of that is we're keen to nearly experience everything whether that means, you know, moving from a job that you've been in for four or five years and then moving into a completely different area because you're actually like, okay, I'm not really enjoying this as much or, you know, I thought it would lead me down this path, but you're then more open to kind of digging into a different area. I think that's kind of one of the key things. And do you think millennials have a bad name then because of those values you've just called out? I think somewhat because, you know, most companies, when they're looking at prospective people to take on board, you know, everyone values loyalty. You know, years and years ago, someone would join a company and they often wouldn't move. Whereas I think these days, everyone's seen the opportunity where actually sometimes you have to jump around a bit into jobs to kind of get to the position you want. Maybe there's a bit more ambition there to rise up the ranks. And in order to do that, you have to jump company often to do that. Mm. So I think there is a sense of, is there the same type of loyalty to a company as there was for just saying my parents' generation? Possibly mm. not. I mean, it sounds like you don't mind being characterized as a millennial and you'd see your generation in the workforce as a group that has a specific set of issues that are particular to them. Is that right? In terms of what we expect from a job, that's what I think is very different. It's not just a case of just doing the normal nine to five. You want your company, I think the company that you represent to be more inclusive and to ensure that they're doing more than just their bit. And I think that's kind of part of it as well. Like you want to feel just as invested in them or, or in the company you're working for as the work mm -hmm. you're doing. Yes. So, so it, you think it's particularly important for people of your generation that the values that the company has align with your own and that the company is really committed to those values. They're not just shiny things that are written up at reception. No, completely. I think some people do like the shiny things and that's mm. why they have a tendency sometimes to move around a bit. I think we're probably a bit more focused on the internal a bit more. Like it's mm. not all about the bells and whistles, but it's actually about, okay, well, what does this bring to my life? I suppose, especially because the work-life balance is often thrown off a bit these mm. days. Like, you know, I, there's no such thing as working a nine to five necessarily. So I think in that sense, that's where these other things come into play, where the value of what you're doing comes into play or feeling if you're going to invest more time into working for a company, you want to feel like that investment is a kind of two-way street. Maybe it's a good opportunity to ask you how well you think the issues that people of your generation face have been covered in the media coverage of the pandemic, particularly the working experience. I think it's interesting. The working experience obviously is something that is very mixed for a lot of people. And really for the generation of the younger end of millennials who are actually all in house share situations, I think that is very, very tricky. A lot of them actually went home during the lockdown because of the fact that they were trying to do work in an environment, in small environments where their housemates were trying to do the same. And I think actually there was like, OK, return to the parents' house where you had maybe a bit more space to work without encroaching on your housemates. It was all well and good for those people who might have already had the flexibility before to work from home and had like a separate office that they could use. But for the most part, for a lot of people, they were sharing kitchen tables with two other people. There mightn't mm. have been the room to do that work in their bedroom. There mightn't have been a kind of a sitting room set up for them to be able to work from there. So you were sharing a space with, you know, two or three other people who were mm. also trying to do their work. That decision to go home might have, you know, quite life-changing consequences. Do you think mm, there might be a drift yeah, back very, away from the cities? Very much so. I think for a lot of companies now, 
the interesting thing was for them to see how they functioned working from home because obviously they have leases and buildings and things like this. But actually, I think what we'll see a lot more of moving forward is office sharing space. It'll just be a case of, you know, they'll reduce the number of people that they have coming into the office. So there will be that flexibility now for people to work from home. One of the questions we ask everybody is, what did you want to be initially when you when you were a child growing up? What was your dream? I wanted to be a vet. That was one of the things. So I loved animals. There was also a point at which I was very much considering being president of Ireland. <laughs> Still this, is before, this is before Mary McAleese, now Mary Robinson. I loved reading, but I was always thinking about journalism. I loved writing stories when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Loved writing stories. So, I mean, not that I was ever considered an author, being an author, a job. It was always something kind of either English or kind of yeah reading related that I was always into. So how did you get into publishing? So I did a degree in English and history, like all general arts degrees came out being like, what do I want to do? And I did do a year of media communications in Griffith College. But what I realized when I did that is that I really hated deadlines. I was not a fan of trying to turn things around really, really quickly. I was researching kind of other courses. I had spent a year in Australia after my media course and I basically came back with like no brain cells and I had no clue of what I wanted to do. So I started researching courses and actually at the time, it's funny, I had fallen out of reading for a few years. I just had been busy in my early 20s, just having fun. And then I got back into reading and I started researching publishing. And so I found this master's in Oxford Books in England. I just thought it sounded really interesting. I was like, I just want to learn more about it. So I applied for it and had a telephone interview and I got that. And that was kind of my first step to considering publishing as a possible industry. It was only when I got work experience and I was very lucky in that a friend of a friend, she had done the same course as me actually, and she ended up working in a book publishers in London and was able to offer me two weeks work experience. And I went in there and I absolutely loved it. I knew that I was probably more publicity or sales or marketing focused because I love talking to people. So like that works well in those areas. And I went in for three weeks and I mean, I basically was doing things like designing posters and I went with them to like a book launch. I had to read a manuscript and kind of like put together a press release. And I just loved every minute of it. Like there was such a busy office. There was just great atmosphere all the time. I basically, I went back, I was continuing my master's, but I kept in touch with one or two people in there. And anytime there was a launch or an opportunity to go to something, I went. Another opportunity came up then to do a cuttings assistant, which was basically just kind of filed or media coverage of any books that came in. And it was like one day a week. And then uh, I was very lucky. An opportunity opened up for an assistant, the publicity director and the MD of the company. I was just perfectly primed in that position Mm -hmm. then, having done work experience and, and knowing some of the staff there. And so I went to interview for it and I got it. It's interesting and networking is such a huge part of publishing. And without realizing it, from the minute I stepped inside to do work experience, that's exactly the skills I put into play was networking, you know, always asking questions, find, trying to find out as much as I could about it, you know, helping out like the amount of cups of tea I made, like anything I could do to just get to know people and kind of get my foot in the door. And that really worked out well for me. And so tell us now, tell us about your role now, what a typical day in that role looks like. 
So in a normal day or normal week, for example, just say we have a book published on a Thursdays or a general publication day. So it could be a case of if it's a big nonfiction book, I might be going to the Late Late Show on a Friday evening with an author who's going to be on that night talking about their book. We might have a Saturday morning book signing session, might be going out to RT again to bring an author out to radio interviews. Like it's up to me basically to pitch for all these media interviews. So, you know, as soon as we get the book and we send it out to all our contacts, then following up and pitching authors for different interview opportunities and slots across print, radio, TV, all of that falls under my remit. Even things like sending copies out to book bloggers and getting them to talk about on social media. And then even just anything like I'd share all of that all of my kind of working time on Twitter, which is actually quite big for book publishing and Instagram. So I'd be sharing, you know, being out with an author and I'd kind of promo that on my social media and the company's social media. But like, obviously the industry in Ireland is, is quite small. So in media terms, you know, you, you get to form really close connections with people. You know what kind of books work for their audiences. For example, Ryan Toberty is the best fiction book slot you can get because he loves fiction. And if you can secure an interview on that, you're sure to see a big spike in book sales off the back of it. So we'd have, you know, particular outlets that we'd want to go for really good book selling interviews that you'll want to secure to get your book on the bestseller list. I'm curious as to what you think makes you good in this job. What sort of skills do you think drive success for you in this role? You have to be a people person for publicity. You have to be able to talk and be quite outgoing because you'll find yourself in situations. I could be out with an author from 7.30 a.m. to 8 p.m. And Mm. if you're not able to hold a good conversation... The other thing is organizational skills are really key in this job because if you're flitting between working with different authors and you're working with different schedules and you need to be kind of on top of your game for that. I mean, I think probably one of my key assets is networking in that sense. What about the business of publishing more generally? Do you think it will change over the course of your career? Because you're still, I suppose, at a relatively early stage. And if so, how do you think it will evolve? It's interesting because publishing, I think, in the last 20 years has seen the biggest shift Mm -hmm. It has ever seen, obviously, with the growth in ebook sales and audio. Like when I first started in publishing, there were no audiobooks, you know, and that was only seven years ago. And I think at the time when I was first coming into it, you know, there was this fear that it would eat away at traditional print books. But actually, we've seen a growth in print books now as well, because, you know, a lot of times people want to have the audio when they're driving their car, but they also want the print book for when they're at home. It's hard to know what technologically will happen, I suppose, in in the sense of publishing. But what's great to see in publishing, what a lot of the companies have been trying to do is represent more diverse voices in in the Mm. books we publish. And I think Mm. that is really key. Do you think that's something millennials have influenced? Yes, I would say, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the problem with publishing previously was, though, it was very white middle class. When I first started my first job, I felt like I stood out like a sore thumb. People were talking <laughs> about books that I'd never read before. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people had been educated at Oxford or Cambridge. But actually, I felt like that was probably to my advantage when I worked and lived in London, because actually I did stand out. So I just think it was a different voice. Mm-hmm. And the more, you know, diverse voices you can bring into in a working environment like that, the more interesting stories you'll find. And I think there was a point there where there was just the same story being told over and over again. And that's really changed, I think. So we're hoping to try and kind of employ more diverse employees Mm. across from all backgrounds, Mm. because, you know, you're not going to find those interesting stories or those other stories without having a diverse workforce. It has Mm. to start within. So that I think is probably one of the key areas that we're going to see growth in and publishing. 
I know that traditionally publishing has often been seen as quite a difficult area to get into. So I was wondering what advice you would have for anybody who was aspiring to get into publishing. The Irish publishing scene is very, very, very small. Um, I remember before I went and did the master's in the UK, I had applied for like one or two work experience and it's just, it's impossible to get into. When I moved to London, I always knew that it wasn't going to be forever but that I wanted to gain the experience that would put me in a better position to find a role in Ireland because I knew I wanted to move home someday. What people often do as well is that they forget that there are other inroads into publishing. It doesn't have to be you do a course and then, oh, I'm, you know, you get a work experience or whatever. There's experience like working in book festivals or bookshops. And that is just as important as like a master's. Having that actual knowledge of the book industry and being at the forefront of that is is book selling. So if you have the experience of book selling, that's a huge advantage. Uh, like an understanding, I think, of all the different publishing houses as well is very key. Um, that's something I actually say to anyone who's ever applying for a work experience program or a job. If you don't know the books that that company is publishing, then like there's no point in you applying first. You have to show your knowledge so that when an opportunity does arrive and you can show that knowledge base, that's what is appealing to a lot of publishers. There are a few companies now that have started doing online work experience opportunities because of the pandemic, which is amazing. And any experience that you can provide on top of that just makes you kind of stand out a bit more. And what's next for you, Elaine? Do you have a long-term career plan or vision for yourself? I love uh, working in publicity and I find it so interesting. I'm really enjoying the publishing side of it, like focusing on the books we do publish. Not that I've ever considered becoming an editor, looking into more senior roles in our company, even like with comes to publishing vision, I think would be really, really interesting. For me, publishing is such a passion. Sometimes I have to kind of pinch myself because I genuinely enjoy what I do. And I think that's quite rare. It's kind of hard to find that. I mean, I will say one thing, publishing does not pay huge amounts of money. So anyone who's coming into the industry needs to be aware of that. They're trying to make changes in terms of salaries. Um, so like when I first started in the UK, I was on 19,000 as an assistant. That was very hard in London, a London wage on London living. The interesting thing is a lot of people say this in those kind of junior roles when you were in London was the first few years you couldn't enjoy London because you didn't have the money. But they are trying to improve on that now. And they're more transparent actually about pay now than what they were when I first started. Now they'll tell you what the pay is for, for a role on social media, whereas before you'd be applying and it'd be in whispers. I think, yeah, to keep that in mind, actually, the publishing, you know, you're talking an average starting salary of 23. That's, mm -hmm. you know, for an industry. And I think what people say is like, oh, you get paid in books and wine, which is somewhat true. To keep in mind that it is considered like a vocational role in the sense that even by moving up the ranks, it's not necessarily going to be leaps and bounds compared to other kind of corporate mm -hmm. industries or anything like that. So if you're looking for a role that's going to make you a lot of money, publishing likely isn't that going to be that kind of industry yeah, for you. Fair enough. You said that it's it's somewhat vocational. And uh, I think that leads us quite nicely into our, our miracle question, which we also always ask, which is that if I told you that that you could pack it all in tomorrow and, and money wasn't an object, would you still do it? Yeah, I would. There's no better satisfaction I get out of like finding a book that I absolutely love. And then it's my job to do my very utmost to help everyone else discover that book. In recent years, since I moved back, I found several campaigns that I've worked on, books that I've loved. Seeing that in the hands of a random person on a bus and you're like, oh, did they listen to that interview? And did I help people discover that author or that book? 
And like, I love hearing my mother talking to me about, oh, I just read this book and it's brilliant. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's one of ours. That was a piece that I set up in a newspaper last week that you heard about it. And also I feel like I love the purpose of it. I hate the idea of like not having a purpose. Very millennial answer. Yeah. Very. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of books that you've loved working on, um, are, have you got any titles that you want to plug before we let you go? Oh, in a few weeks time, we are publishing Above Water by Trish Kearney. So I think you'll be seeing that everywhere. And in terms of upcoming fiction, we have some incredible books by um, authors, including Joe Spain and a new book by Anne Griffin, whose best-selling debut when all I said was one of the best-selling books of 2019. Um, So we're really excited for that. Um, But yeah, there's there's always so many. I find it hard to <laughs> to pick just one because I just say one and then another brilliant one comes up and, and mm. off I go again. Well, on that note, can we say thank you so much, Elaine? It's certainly been a pleasure hearing about your, your passion, uh, the industry you're in, uh, and we wish you continued success. And uh, that's all we have for you today, folks. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. Mm-hmm.